of the scriptures, if you would please, to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. John, chapter 17. Sometimes, I'm going to try to say this, I've, I've, certain times there's lines that I act, I literally rehearse because I just feel like they're clunky or they're not coming out as smooth as they could be. I just want to let you know I'm not happy with this line yet because I've rehearsed it many times and it just still sounds clunky. So I'm going to see if you get it. I'm going to say it twice. Sometimes people say something to someone with the ulterior motive that someone within earshot would hear it as well. Raise your hand if you think that's kind of clunky. Okay. But, but hopefully, you know, you see, I'm like, how can I shorten it? How can I smooth it out? I can't iron it out on your own right now. It's really wrinkly, but I'll say it one more time. Sometimes people say something to someone with the ulterior motive that someone within earshot would hear it as well. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Like you're talking to him, but you really don't hate that he and he and she heard it, even though I'm talking to him, okay? Uh, earlier this year, uh, Dave and I coached my son, Dave Warrens and I coached my son's baseball team, the infamous Jackalopes, okay? Tagline, we're legendary. That's right, okay? We are legendary. We had a legendary two wins all season. It was legendary. It was awesome. And sometimes I found myself um, speaking to one of my pitchers, but I didn't terribly mind if the umpire heard as well. Okay, so I don't know, you know, ooh, that was a good pitch, Johnny, right over the plate, right at the letters. Do it again, buddy, even though it was called a ball, right? So I didn't really mind that the umpire uh, heard it. Matt Ross actually came to watch one of our games, and he called strikes from the stands. It was pretty cool. Like from the stands, and like people would look, was it a strike? Was it not? He was, it, it was a talent. The guy actually obviously played college baseball. Uh, there was one time when... Uh, this one pitcher on the opposing team pegged uh, not one, not two, but how many? Three of our batters in a row. And when I say hit him with the ball, I don't mean just tapped him, laid him out. Laid him out, three in a row, hit him hard. Really, really, really hard. This guy was a powerful pitcher, and he laid, and the first time it happens, it's, it's, it's part of baseball, it's part of the game. The second time, Okay, the third time, I'm having a little trouble kind of walking in the spirit, if you know what I'm saying. So I walk over to the umpire and say aloud, um, hey, you know what? One time's an accident, two maybe, three times seems like a hobby. That was kind of in the flesh. It, It was not, it wasn't cool. He thought, Am I accusing him of doing it on purpose? The answer being yes. And the pitcher, just his head just dropped. And the other coach came out to defend him. And I'm thinking, if I could just tell you what I'm thinking, if I could just, like, here's what I would do if I was the umpire, if I was the blue, okay? I would have went up to the coach and said, okay, look, he's either doing it on purpose or he's just having a bad day. But either way, he's got to go, okay? So you replace him and that's cool. Or I toss him and that's public and embarrassing, but you have 60 seconds. I'm just going to stand over here and trust you to make the right decision. That's what I would do if I was the umpire, but I wasn't the umpire as the coach, but I had thoughts and I verbalized them as you know. And, um, I, but then I apologized. I said, I'm sorry. I just saw three of my kids. I mean, laid out, laid out with tears, laid out. And my son was next up to bat, by the way. So, and (laughs) We didn't have our insurance cards on us, so I, it's like, <sighs> so he ended, up, he ended up picking him. Fun fact, then afterwards, we're driving home, and Justin tells me that, that he's like, oh, that pitcher, he's, that's uh, Johnny from Three Houses Down. Yeah, so pray for that. That was <laughs> not a stellar moment, but all worked out. Opportunity to ask for forgiveness. Sometimes people say things to someone with the ulterior motive that someone else with an earshot would hear what they're saying. I think parents do this a lot, okay? I think parents do this a lot. You, hopefully you'd be honest and say you're not the only person who's ever prayed to God for your kids, but it was also a sermon to your kids. And you're laughing because you understand, you know, dear Lord, help, help Johnny to clean his room like he's been told several times before, and we wouldn't have to have such difficult times, Father, in heaven, if... He would just simply clean his room, help him to realize, oh Lord, how simple it is and how honored you would be by God if he would obey me, thus obeying you, 
by cleaning his room in Jesus' name, but seriously, clean your room, amen. Like, that's, that's a prayer that parents sometimes, I don't think they mean to be blasphemous or mean to be sacrilegious in doing that, but sometimes I can't help but acknowledge the fact that my kid is sitting right next to me and I want him to hear what I'm saying. So it's, I don't think it's insincere, but whatever. Sometimes people say something to someone with the ulterior motive that someone else within earshot hears it. Prayer is supposed to be conversation with God, and yet sometimes when people pray, it seems as if their words were intended for others as well. Jesus' ministry, chock full of prayer. Luke 3.21 records Jesus praying at his baptism. Before Jesus preached in Galilee, Mark 1 and verse 35 tells us he went to a desolate place and he prayed. Uh, He prayed before he chose the 12 disciples in Luke 6, before he fed the 5,000 in Matthew 14, and then after feeding the 5,000 in the same chapter, and then he prayed before he fed the 4,000 in the next chapter. He prayed at the transfiguration in Luke 9. He prayed for some kids that were brought to him in Matthew 19. He prayed after the 70 that he had sent out returned. He prayed before he gave the Lord's prayer. He prayed before he raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. He prayed at the Last Supper. He prayed in Gethsemane in Matthew 26. He prayed for Peter in Luke 22. He prayed as he faced the very real and present danger and reality of the cross. And he even prayed while hanging from it. He prayed with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and at the ascension in Luke 24. Suffice it to say, from start to finish, Jesus' earthly ministry was full of prayer. And... The Bible even says Christ is still praying for us even today, even now, right? Writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 says he always lives to make intercession for us. Paul in Romans 8 says that he's at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. 1 John 2.1 says that we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus' ministry on earth and even now in heaven, chock full of prayer. But the vast majority of the time Jesus prays, We have no details regarding what he prayed or how he prayed. We're just told he withdrew on his own and prayed. What did he say? He withdrew to a desolate place and prayed. More times than not, we don't know what he prayed. But praying aloud to God with a dual purpose of both God hearing and others hearing is not necessarily unfounded in Scripture. Think about it. There are times when we know for certain Christ intended his prayer to be heard. If you were to look in John 11, which we won't go there today, but in John 11, uh, right as Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, it says, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said aloud, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know, watch this, and I know that you always hear me. And he says this literally verbatim. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe you sent me. So that's not wondering what he, he says, here's why I'm saying this to you, Father. Because of the people standing by, I want them to know this so that you, they can believe that you've sent me. John 17 that we're looking at today contains what is commonly referred to as Jesus's high priestly prayer. And evidenced by the fact that you and I can read it today and that Christ prayed this prayer aloud in the presence of his disciples, we know that this prayer was intended to be heard. Of all the prayers that Jesus prayed, this one gets a lot of ink. This one gets a lot of time in the Gospel of John. So God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring John to write these things means he wants us to know what was on Jesus' heart as he prayed this prayer. He prayed it for the 12 at that time, but also for Christians like you and me some 2,000 years later. The question is, what does this have to do with our sermon series called Unstoppable? Well, the title of our sermon today is Recognizing We're Not Home Yet. This isn't a sermon specifically about the whole of John 17. We're not dissecting the high priestly prayer of Christ, although I would encourage you to spend some time looking at it. You can learn a lot about a person by how they pray, and especially how they pray aloud, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12, 34. We know that this is a great window into Jesus' heart, what was on his heart and his mind for Christians both then and now. We can learn from this prayer what was and is on Christ's heart regarding his people. So if this sermon serves to whet your appetite to understand more about this prayer, consider looking at it on your own uh, in more detail. But as I said, how someone prays oftentimes reveals a lot about what's on 
their heart. So today, having such a a robust prayer of Jesus in this text, we're going to look at it to see what's on Christ's heart when it comes to people like you and people like me being part of a living, breathing, active church that is, quite frankly, unstoppable for the glory of God. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read, uh, I'm going to read uh, aloud, beginning in John chapter 16, verse 32, because I think that's kind of where Jesus sets up this prayer, and we're going to read through the entirety of the prayer. There's no better way to pray for our service than to pray a prayer that Jesus prayed, right? I'm going to be dead on if I stick to that. So that's what we're going to do today. So if you're physically able, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word while I read John chapter 16, verses 32 to the end of John chapter 17? And this is what the word of God says. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've, I've guarded them, and I, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known to them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Father, we seek not to add to a prayer that your perfect son, our Messiah, prayed for us. We just ask that we would grow to understand it and understand what is on his heart for us today. Do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
So the question is this. What does this prayer have to do with us being unstoppable? Why do we look at this prayer and say, let's recognize that we're not home yet? Well, I wanted to point something out to you first, and just really by way of introduction, and that's how Jesus sets up this prayer. Now, if we were to to continue reading the very next chapter, right there, it gets really real in John chapter 18, because it says in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Brook Kidron, where there was a garden, where he and his disciples entered. And right there, by verse 2, we start reading about the betrayal of Jesus, where Judas betrays the Son of Man. So with that in mind, knowing that's coming... Look at John 16, the, the, first two, and the last two verses of John 16, verses uh, 32 and following, and look what Jesus says. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. Hey, it's here. It's here. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. He's saying, it's, it's coming. In fact, it's like right, it's like right here. It's right behind me. It's coming. It's, it's right here. It's going to happen. You're going to be scattered. And you're going to leave me. And he says, yet I am not alone for the father is with me. And I want you to see that we recognize that we're not home yet. But God's word points us there for hope and help in today's trials. God's word points us heavenward for hope and help in today's trials. Look at verse 32. Jesus says that his followers would desert him. But he also says the presence of his heavenly father was enough. He knew he was never truly totally alone, but he had the presence of God with him. And that was more than enough. You notice he doesn't say you're going to desert me, but don't worry. I have other friends. You're good. He doesn't say you're going to desert me, but I have another group of people who are going to come in and they're going to have my back. He doesn't say that. He says, you're going to desert me, but I have my heavenly father. What's going to happen is I'm going to lose you guys. You'll be scattered. Yet I am not alone. You see that in the end of verse 32, I'm not alone. And he says, for the Father is with me. Does the presence of God serve as a comfort to you? Does knowing the Lord is with you, that he has made his his abode, his dwelling place inside of you, how does that serve you? Does that serve as a comfort to you or is it just like a thing? God is with me. God God is with me. He's everywhere. Yeah, I know, God's with me, and I'm here, and he's here, and that's not, and I'm, I don't mean to make light of it, but what else? Because Jesus Christ says that's what gave him comfort. When he thinks about everyone abandoning him, he, doesn't, he, he, he looks to heaven and he says, I have my heavenly Father. God is with me. It reminds me of Psalm 139, where, where uh, the psalmist says, Psalmist David says, where can I go from your spirit, right? Where can I flee from your presence? Okay, now if someone didn't love the Lord, they might, where can I go from your spirit? You're always with me. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your right hand shall leave me alone. But it's amazing how when you love the Lord, his constant presence, his omnipresence with us serves as a comfort and a hope to us, right? When he says, where can I go from your presence? If I make my bed in heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand shall hold me. Does the presence of God serve you? Knowing that the presence of God is with you, that he's always with you, how does that serve you in times of trouble, in times of need, in times of want, and particularly in times of loneliness? Feeling that there's nobody around, And that you're all by yourself, either physically, literally, or maybe you're surrounded by tons and tons of people, but nobody is quite like you. Nobody thinks quite like you. You're swimming uphill. You're, you're around family who, who love you, but don't love him. And it's weird. You're, you're in a, you're in a class and you're the only one who thinks along biblical lines and everybody else seems to be going way out of their way to go against God. I, I don't know what the situation is. Does the presence of God serve you in those times because it's that's what served christ in this time look at verse 33 he says i have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation right he knows what's coming up 
You're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Christ pointed his disciples to his sure and certain victory over the world as a way to take courage in the earthly trials they would face. Nowhere in these verses does he point them to earthly comforts. Nowhere in these verses does he point them to earthly hope. In verse 33, he says, we're going to have tribulation. And he doesn't go on to say, but don't worry, because I'm going to take away the tribulation. But don't worry, they'll get theirs. Take heart, I'm going to change your circumstances. It's interesting to note that of all the times the writers of Scripture write about and pray for the new believers in the baby churches all throughout the New Testament, not once does anyone pray for their circumstances to change. You can't find it. Instead, they have their eyes fixed on a vertical trajectory, even though they have horizontal troubles. Even though they have troubles down here, the Bible is now look back, and it's not about here. It's you look up. You look up. You say, but the trouble's here. And the Bible constantly says, yes, but you look up. You look to Jesus. You look to something eternal, even when you're dealing with something temporal. Does the fact that Christ has overcome the world help you navigate the difficult trials in your life? And if it doesn't, this would be a good follow-up question for you to consider. Why not? Why not? Why is that not enough for us to have confidence in our God and what he has done for us? Why is that not enough? And if we continue asking ourselves that and taking that before the Lord and comparing our perspective with God's perspective, I think we'll find that we're probably looking for something that God doesn't really want us looking for in the first place. And that's probably comfort in this life. That's how Jesus sets this up. And if it's not enough that Christ has overcome the world, I think you'll be left wanting in whatever you look at. When there's something happening in life that's too hard to handle, too much to take in, too, too daunting to look at, Christ says, look up. And that's what Christ did, and that's what we should do. We're reminded every day in different ways that we're certainly not home yet. But we can look towards it and receive comfort and guidance and peace and help in our time of need from Christ, our refuge. Now, as you saw when we read it earlier, there are a ton of things that Jesus prays for in this sermon. A ton. And I don't have the ability to go into everything in one sermon. No one does. Uh, so that's not my goal. As I familiarized myself with this portion of Scripture this week, read it repeatedly, looked at it in different versions. Sometimes I'll listen to it from my phone. I, 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 that's always what I do. When I try to, when I'm preparing to preach, I familiarize myself with the passage as much as possible. Uh, but particularly in the version that I'm going to read from and preach from, the ESV, but also trying to compare it to others. And I want to hear it, and I want to read it, I want to speak it. I try to familiarize myself with the text as much as possible. And as I did that, I wondered what the Lord would have for us today as we look at this portion of Scripture. But one time only, and then move on. And many things stood out to me, but one thing more than anything else stood out, and that was this, and that's what's in your outlines. And that is this, we're not home yet, but if we're going to make a, the most of our time here, right now, we need to have a same team mentality in life and ministry. A same team mentality in life and ministry. And here's what I want you to notice from your Bibles. That both in Christ's prayer for his original disciples and in his prayer for his subsequent disciples. And I probably should pause and explain to you what I mean. If you look at John 17 and you look at the text of Scripture... It could probably be broken up best into three sections. If you look at verses 1 through 5, Christ is talking about him and his work as it relates to the Father. He's praying about himself and the glory that he wants his Father to receive. Section 1. If you look in verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying for his then-living disciples. Right? He's praying for those disciples who are not altogether unlike you and I. Right, There's lots that we have in common with them. But he's saying things that would apply to them about the time that he spent with them. Not saying we can't draw application from that, but it's secondary. He's praying for them. But if you look in verse 20, look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would be people like you and me. I'm not, I'm not just praying for these only. 
I'm praying for the people who would benefit from the preaching of the word from generation to generation to generation. So I would say there's three sections of this prayer. Jesus praying about himself, Jesus praying about the disciples who then lived, and then Jesus praying about disciples like you and like me. And what I want you to see that in his prayer for his original disciples and for people like us, his subsequent disciples, he prays specifically and repeatedly for our unity, that we might be one as he is one with his father. Look in your Bibles at John chapter 17, verse 11. Jesus says this, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Now, he, he actually was in the world, right? He was standing in the world when he prayed this. But he's praying as if it's as good as done. Just like he says, I've overcome the world. It's as good as done. He says, I'm coming to you. He's not literally being ascending right there. He hasn't even been crucified yet. But it's as good as done. Verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be, what's that word? That they may be one, even as we are one. That's a powerful statement. He's not like, help them to all hold hands and get along. Hey, don't fight. You guys don't fight. No, it's not that. Help them be one, even as we are one. And we don't have time to get into it, but he's comparing the oneness of those disciples and of that team to the oneness that is shared between God the Father and God the Son. Say, wow. Yeah, that's, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. It's not just help them to get along. Help them to be one even as we are one. And if time allowed us, we would get into that a little more. How God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit function. They're inseparably united. And that's what he prays in verse 11. But now skip down to verse 20 that we looked at just before. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may, right, this is us, all be what? One. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Do you see that? Christ practically trips over himself, praying that his present-day disciples experience unity in verse 11, and that we who live today in verses 20 and following also would experience unity. In fact, he prays this four times in the span of the entire prayer. It's like, all right, we get it, all right. He prays it four times, and three of them are for us. Of the four times he's praying for that, three of them fall after what I see as a separation where Jesus is praying probably more so for us as subsequent disciples who would believe in him later on in life. Three of those times are for us. Why the redundancy? Why the redundancy? Do you ever pray with someone and they're praying aloud and they just pray the same words over and over and over again? And you're like, God heard you, right? Why the redundancy? Why does Jesus pray the same thing over and over and over again? Keep your finger in John 17 and do me a favor. Turn over to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot, not just for this sermon, but just because there's some common denominators that I've noticed in my own life uh, and also in the time that I've been serving and been counseling and it's been on my mind a lot. That doesn't make me an expert by any stretch. It just means I think about it a lot. <laughs> a lot. And I'm not an old man, but I've been a pastor for about 15 years now, 10 of which I've served at this church. And I'm not a know-it-all by any stretch of the imagination. But I've been counseling for a while now and, and also just married and living life for a while now. And here's what I've noticed. Here's what I've noticed. That unity doesn't just happen. Unity doesn't just happen, and unity doesn't stand on its own. Unity doesn't just happen, and unity doesn't stand on its own. Sometimes it's granted, right? Sometimes we get off to a, to a strong start, but a strong united start doesn't necessarily guarantee a strong united finish. Unity doesn't just happen, and unity doesn't stand on its own. That's why Paul says what he does in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Okay, 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he's saying, in light of everything I've written to you in the first three chapters, he's now he's going to give us our marching orders. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And quite frankly, I don't think people in general are eager to maintain unity. They want it. They li- Who doesn't like unity, right? We want it. We like it. We appreciate it. But maintain it? That, that takes work and, 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 and thought and intentionality and honesty and transparency and vulnerability. It takes a whole lot of effort. And then Paul goes on to remind us of the unity we share with each other by using the word one seven times in three verses. Do you see that? Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One body, one spirit in verse 4. Unity needs to be maintained. It's great when we have it. It's great when we're granted it. It's not going to stay that way. I don't think people in general, in families, at work, on teams, in groups, are eager to maintain unity. It's kind of like a, uh, I, I bought one new car. I don't know if I'll ever buy a new car again, but I bought one new car. Just the thought of that thing depreciating in value, the amount that it depreciates as I roll it out of the lot just makes me kind of throw up a little in my mouth. So I don't know if I'm going to ever do that again. But anyway, the, 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 that new car smell, the feeling of it, the, 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 way it, the way it rides, the way that there's no fingerprints anywhere, it's just perfect, perfect, perfect. It's really, really, really cool. Cars need to be maintained. They need to be maintained. Sometimes cars just die because we're on this side of heaven and cars die. It's not worth fixing it. Just, just junk it. Sometimes they die because of negligence. Sometimes they don't have that smell, that operation that they had when they first started because of negligence. I don't think people are eager to maintain unity. In our marriage... Team LaRufa needs to be on the same page. I've started in marriage counseling referring to the couples as team their last name. Is that going to be best for team Cantu? What about team Roarch? How about a team Werns? Like I, I've said, is this best? We have to make sure that we're looking out for team Werns, team Sparks, team Coghill. We need to make sure that we're looking out for team Glenn, team Richard, whatever. This team needs to be on the same page. Is what you're doing going to promote that oneness or is it, or is it not? Team LaRufa needs to be on the same team. We, we like to get unity nice and fresh and new. Love it. But then before long, we're finding we have to fix unity. The writers of scripture care so much about unity. Jesus prayed a lot about unity in John 17. He prayed about for his disciples. And in this prayer, he prays for it repeatedly for us. Why? Because that's what I asked myself. How come three times for us, one time for them? Why three times for us, one time for them? I don't know. Perhaps it's because we're so far removed from him time-wise, his earthly life, the first century church, people who are still, you know, relatives and friends with people who actually saw him or heard of him from someone who did, that our unity would perhaps most be at risk. So since we're not home yet, I want us to look at this prayer and see what we could find about unity. In other words, on what fronts do we need to be, do we need to be united on? You know, we don't want to all be clones, right? That's unity. Yes. Cloning is weird, right? Remember, remember the sheep years ago? How many of you remember? Right. That was just weird. We shouldn't be doing that. So, so we don't want to clone each other, but where should we be united on? So as I looked through the, the passage, I actually found five or six things that I think the Lord would have us be united on. I pared it down to three for us today. And if we had extra time, which I'm not anticipating, I'll briefly touch on those others or you can find them on your own. But here's what I want us to look at. We're on the same team if we're united in our aim. If we're united in our aim as a church for the glory 
of God. Look at John 17, verse 1. Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. When Jesus asks that he be glorified, like in verse 5, he's asking specifically that God's plan of redemption, of rescuing lost sinners through his atoning sacrifice, uh, which is just a uh, a few chapters away, that that would be fulfilled as God wanted it to be done, as God plans, as God ordained. Thy will be done. When he's saying glorify yourself, Bring about the glory of God through glorify yourself, glorify me, that people will see this. Glorify yourself. We need to be united in our aim, and that needs to be the glory of God. Question, when do you find yourself thinking the most about glorifying God? Is it just like during your, your times in the word, or is it just at, at church, or is it just when you're talking to your kids about the Lord, maybe doing a devotion with them, or is it just when you're attending some uh, a, a parachurch ministry meeting, maybe it's on campus or maybe it's somewhere else. When, do you, when are you thinking about the glory of God? What do you think about the fact that you can glorify God in all aspects of your life? You can glorify God in all aspects of your life. Just like the Father and Son are united in aim, which is to glorify God, we need to, as a body of believers and as a church, say, okay, We exist to make sure that we glorify God in everything that we do. Now, here's what I'm not saying. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we exist to be perfect. And if you're not being perfect, you're bringing us down. You are the weakest link. That's not what I'm saying. We exist to glorify God. Did you glorify God in everything you did this week? You didn't? Well, thanks a lot. Wow. Wow. Way to bring the average down. Man, that's not what I'm saying. We're not trying to be perfect. We need to have a common aim. A common aim. If you look at an approach to an airport, okay, and they're all lined up as they're trying to land on a runway, not every airplane hits the runway at the exact same place, but they all hit what? The runway, right? We're all going to be at different places, and they're all going to go a certain distance before they'll stop and then taxi off, but they're all aimed for the same place. We need to be aimed for the glory of of God. That's something that Jesus seems to care a lot about in the way that he prays his prayer, particularly in the first five verses. And just like the father and son are united in aim, the church also shares in a commitment to the glory of God. First Corinthians 10 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when we as Christians, right, as a church are told to do all to the glory of God, what is that? What does that mean? Well, it means we want God's will to be done on earth. And whatever opportunities we have to advance that, whatever opportunities we have to obey, we do our best to please the Lord. We want to see God's plan of redemption come to fruition. And quite frankly, we want a piece of the action. So we want to see God's plan of redemption actually come about, but we also want to participate in it. We want to, we want to help it. We want to have a part of that. We want a piece of the action. We want to play a part. And that brings us to our next point. We need to be united in aim, but we also need to be on the same team and united in our assignment. Namely, reaching lost people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at John 17, verses 2 through 4. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So he's saying, I've glorified your name. I've accomplished that work in the work that you've given me to do. I've manifested your name, verse 6. Do you see that? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. And just as the Father and Son are united in mission, they have that same assignment, The church now carries out that assignment to reach the lost. Because if you look at John 17, further on down the passage, you look in verse 18, he says something very similar. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Do do you see that? He's saying, here's what I've done that you've sent me. Now I'm going to do the same thing for them. I'm sending them into the world to do that same thing. Then if you look at verse 21, it says, so that the world may know that you sent me 
and love them even as you have loved me. We need to have a common aim, the glory of God. But we also need to be united in our assignment, in our assignment, namely reaching lost people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and really reaching anyone with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to also know and become aware, if you're not already, that there are Christians who leave the gospel at the starting line of their walk with Christ. Does, does that make sense? They leave it there. It's a tool to take out for evangelism. If they're not evangelizing, they throw it back there. And they're kind of excited about what Jesus did for them, but now they need to move on. And they find themselves joyless, powerless, helpless, hopeless for living this life that God has called them to live. Our assignment is reaching people with the gospel. We want the gospel of Jesus Christ to so impact people's lives that they'd be changed forever. Like you and I have been changed forever. Not a one-time little, oh, that felt good. We're changed forever. Do you know what God uses most to do this? People like you. People like me. Lives like yours. Imperfect, but faithful. Marriages like yours. Imperfect, but steadfast. Families like yours. Imperfect, but loving and different. Students like you. Imperfect, but resolute. Ladies like you. Imperfect, but women of conviction, men like you, imperfect but committed and sold out. A church like us, imperfect but united. United in aim, united in assignment. Why add a second service? Do you know how hard one service is? Why double it? What are we just, gluttons for punishment? Why add two services? Or is just something you do? <laughs> something we do. Why add a second service? It's, it, we didn't do this for our comfort. We're not wanting to grow so we can make ends meet. We're not striving for more so we can brag about it. It's nothing of the sort. Why did we add two serve? Why do we add a service? Why is this our first first service? Why are we about to have our first second service? Well, here's why. In addition to your witness and your example, I want you to be able to say, "Come and see." I want you to be able to invite people to see others, watch others like you. So you're not just the only Jesus freak at work. There's other Jesus freaks. And we all gather here every week. You're not just the only person who's sharing the gospel. You're not the only person swimming upstream. You may feel like that at, in the board meeting. It might feel like that on campus. But then you come here and you're like, oh, there's others. How many of you get that sense when you come to church? I know I do. Oh, there's others who love the Lord. Oh, I want you to have a place to do that for people that you share to. I don't think that it's the only way that people can be saved. I'm not saying that at all. But I want you to be able to do that so that in addition to your witness, you also are able to say, hey, come and see. Come and hang out. Come and hear the word of God. Come and see people who are on the same team as you because God will use that not as the only means, but as a very effective means of calling people to himself. And so we know our assignment, reaching people, and we know our aim, glorifying God, and we do our best to facilitate whoever the Lord is going to bring. And eventually, at some point, we're going to hit a ceiling, right? We're, gonna, we're not going to just keep, or up to our ninth service, if the Lord were to grow us, right? We're not looking to be six flags over Jesus. What we want to do is we want to reach people with the gospel and then send people out. That's what we did. That's why we're at Fort Thomas. That's why we were in Newport. That's why we're not still at Florence. United in our aim to glorify God. United in our assignment. And so instead of just feeling cozy in one service, and one service is pretty cozy. It's a bear to get off the ground, but at the end of the day, it's, it's still pretty cozy, right? We all get to see each other every week. We get to hang out afterwards. We don't have to worry about transitions. We do the hard thing. We multiply. Just like in small group, we do the hard thing. We birth and we multiply. Raise your hand if you've been part of a small group that's birthed and you think that was hard. Right? It's hard. It's painful. Worth it. Hard. Painful. Worth it. Difficult now. Worth it later. Do you live your life daily on assignment 
from the Lord? Is your heart burdened for those who don't know Christ? What did you allow to be prioritized over this assignment last, last week? What, where did you put something above this assignment? Whether it was comfort or ease or embarrassment. I, I, I don't know what it is. Where did you, you have this assignment? Okay, I'm, I'm united in aim. I'm united in assignment. Yeah, but seriously, there's someone else. There's someone will work it out. God is sovereign. What, where did you reprioritize your life? to put the assignment second to something else. And that's a, that's a question. I, I can't preach that answer to you, right? And you can't preach it to me because you have to go to the tape and you have to think about where am I, where, where could I better prioritize something? And it might not be, you know, I'm, I'm quitting my job. and doing. In fact, it's probably not doing that. Like I'm not telling you to quit your job. Don't quit your job. Well, I'm not telling you to do that, but it might just be a mentality. It might just be a mentality that affects how you live your daily life, whether it's on assignment or whether it's just to, to get by day to day to day. We do the hard thing because we know our aim is God's glory. Our assignment is God's people. And then finally, we need to be on the same team if we're united in our allegiance to God's sufficient, powerful, living, and active word. We have an aim. We have an assignment. What are we going to use? Lots of people use very, very, very different things to reach people, to draw them in, to attract people, to have that conversation. We need to be united on the word of God. John 17 and verse 8, Jesus says, I have given them the what? He doesn't say the miracles. He doesn't say the food. He doesn't say the healing. He doesn't say the walking on water. He says, I've given them the words that you gave me. And they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. I've given them your words. Word, he says in verse 14. Christ was committed to giving the word to his disciples. He continues to make it known to us so others might hear, believe, and love Christ and be saved. And look at verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that they love with which you have loved me. Excuse me, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ says, this is what I've done while I've been on earth. This is what I've done while I live my earthly life. I'm going to continue to do it, God, through these people. I'm going to continue to make my name known through these people so that others might know the love of Christ. And that's who we are. This is what we do. And this is why we do it. We're people who are committed to the glory of God to reaching people with the gospel and to using God's holy word in so doing. This is why we do what we do. This is why we add a service. This is why we do hard things. This is why some of you are sitting in this service and going to serve in the next service. Or if there's people serving during this service, they're going to sit in this service because it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do, but it's worth it because we can reach people and glorify God in so doing. I am hoping and praying for our church that we would be united on, I would love to be united on everything. I'd love to be united. I'd love us all to root for the Cubs. I'd love, I'd love to be united on everything, but particularly on these three things, our aim, our assignment, and our allegiance. Aiming to glorify God, on assignment together to reach other people, talking to them, praying for them, inviting them, and using God's word to impact their lives, hoping that they would get a taste, that they would be able to taste and see that the Lord is good, that they would understand the glory of God as is manifested through Jesus Christ, and that God would use people like you and like me to do that. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. And think about these things. Ask the Lord to show you. Does my life reflect a commitment to the word of God? 
Does my life reflect a, a do I think about this, this aim of glorifying you? Does, do I think about being on assignment and unstoppable as Christ would have me be? As being part of this church, as I raise my kids, as I seek to work for the glory of God, as we teach in our classrooms, as we sit in our classrooms as students, do I have a common aim? Do I have a common assignment? Do I have a solid allegiance to the word of God? Lord, only you can show us that. Only you. Only you can apply this message um, individually. I've applied it collectively to all of us. I desperately need you to preach it to me personally, to preach it to each and every person in here individually and show this is how you apply this. This is how you can contribute to maintaining unity, unity with you, Father, unity among our church. This is what you need to do. Father, would you do that? Holy Spirit, would you do that? Each and every one of us who love you has you in us. We acknowledge that. We're grateful for that. Help us to be sensitive to you. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us as we spend time with you. Lay things on our hearts that would have us go the uh, perhaps an extra mile or reprioritize things. Show us what we need to do to have a common aim, to be aware of our assignment, and Lord, to be have an allegiance to your holy word for the glory of God the Father. Lord, we love you. Christ, thanks for praying for us even now. Thanks for praying for us then. Thank you for praying for us now, making intercession for me right now as you're seated at the right hand of God the Father. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.